again, I want to thank you very much for letting me be here uh, today. Uh, I always enjoy coming to this congregation. Uh, James Brown sitting there, Free Will is one of my others. Uh, I grew up at Free Will, was converted when I was going there, and uh, it's always had a special place in my heart as well. But uh, thank you so much. We, uh, we want to talk about the elder brother this afternoon. Uh, I've got uh, too many slides, so I'm going to have to cut it short somewhere along the line. The question I'd like to raise is what incited the parable in the first place? I told you this morning that if I were going to name the parable, I would call it, uh, I would call it the forgiving father, the compassionate father, uh, the forgiving father, something to do with the father. Because our Lord's point was to show us and others, the people then, uh, what God is really like. And God is a, he's a beautiful person once you get to know him. He's very easy to love. But what incited the parable on this occasion? I believe we find the answer in the first three verses. The tax collectors, the sinners drew near to hear Jesus speak. The Pharisees, the scribes complained, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. <laughs> Uh, therefore, because of that statement they made, Jesus spoke this parable to them, them being the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought they knew what God was like. Obviously, they did not. So our Lord's uh, primary purpose for this sermon was to show them what God is really like. There was something wrong with the Pharisees and scribes. And this is what bothers me about them. Those who come most to being like the Pharisees and scribes are those of us who have been Christians for a number of years. We have, uh, there are certain qualities we possess that are similar to theirs. And that's what uh, helped contribute to the bad attitude they had about themselves, others, and God. Sometimes it's possible for people due to time spent uh, as a Christian, call it seniority if you want to, uh, or the, the knowledge we have, or all the good works we have done, sometimes it's possible for you and I to develop an attitude akin to these fellas. So for me, these men are of particular interest to me because I know it's possible for me to make a similar error. And uh, I don't want to because I know the consequences of theirs was a horrible things. What the Pharisees and scribes would see during this parable, number one, they would look at life from the vantage point of sinners. Sometimes we don't do that. We don't think about what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. Today, we were talking just a little while ago about some children who are being raised by children. And some of the children, uh, they're being raised by delinquent parents, parents who just aren't there. They're not there emotionally. Sometimes they're not even there physically. And a lot of kids are raised in homes very, very different from the homes you and I were raised in. And they're going to turn out differently than us. They're going to think different. Their values will be different. Uh, their perception of life is going to be so very different than ours. Imagine uh, children, imagine growing up in a house where selling illegal drugs was acceptable. Imagine growing up in such an environment where your mother constantly brought in different men and your father didn't care. He was collecting the money. There are so many different environments that children are raised in today. It's easy to judge bad behavior on their part 
without giving much consideration to why they may be behaving that way. And this was one of the problems the Pharisees and scribes suffered from. They didn't think about life on the other side of the fence. They knew what life was like in their environment, but they didn't think about life uh, in, in our world where you had no money, for example, and you had no land, you had nothing to make money by, and why some people might become a tax collector, for example, why so many women did become prostitutes, which was quite an industry in Jerusalem uh, at this time in history. So they're going to learn something about life from the vantage point of the sinners. Of course, that comes to us from the prodigal son. Well, they're going to learn something about the love, the understanding, compassion, and grace of God. This is something they didn't think about too much. They were uh, good men. They were men that were going to heaven. Uh, they didn't really put a lot of emphasis on God's part in all this. They deserved to go to heaven because they were good in their own mind, you understand. Uh, they knew there was God, and they, they went through all the, the lip stuff, talking to God. But that's pretty much all it was. It was going through the motions. There was really no uh, relationship between them and God. But he, Jesus is going to show them the heart of God. Let them look at God from the inside out. Finally, he's going to force them to see their unmerciful selves. They're ugly people. They're ugly. I'm not talking about physically ugly. They're ugly on the inside. They don't care. They really don't care. All they care about is their self. Everybody else is a tool in their little world. Uh, they didn't care about the tax collectors or the sinners. Uh, that was a, no, that wasn't their problem. That was their problem. Uh, they just knew they disgusted them, and they didn't want them around. They weren't trying to save them. People like that should stay away and stay out of sight. And that's all they cared about. And the Lord's going to force them this day to look at life from this vantage point. In our story, the prodigal son has just returned home and we're just now being introduced to the elder brother for the first time. Uh, we read about him beginning in verse 25. We'll go over it rather quickly. The older son was in the field. He was a good son, dutiful son. He accepted his responsibility. He worked hard. Whatever his daddy wanted done, that boy was on the job. He was doing it. And that's what he's doing at this time. He's working out in the field. It's time to come in. And as he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, which, of course, was strange at this particular time. He called out to one of the servants, and he asked, What does all this mean? What's going on? And the servant said, Your brother has come home, finally. And because your daddy has received him safe and sound, he has killed that fatted calf he's been saving up for a special occasion. Oh, the son, he was angry. His brother, who had gone off, had returned. And he was angry. He refused to go into the house. And therefore, his father, being the compassionate person he was, being the understanding father he was. You know his heart was cut to the quick because this brother wasn't happy that his younger brother had come home. Nevertheless, the father came out and he pleaded with his son. Sometimes, you know, you think you might have went out there and, you know, you know, give him a good smack or something. But not this father. He pleaded with his son to be reasonable and rational. Rational. He answered and said to his father, All these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. 
and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. <clears throat> but as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood, your living, with harlots, you've killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. Your brother was lost, and now he founds. he's found. Unfortunately, that's where the parable ends. What did the elder brother do? I don't know. Probably nothing. There was probably no change in him. People like the Pharisees and the scribes uh, generally reach a point of no return. They've got uh, their salvation locked in. They see no fault in themselves. Uh, they can't imagine being rejected by God. And when they hear something like this, they probably don't listen much. It's, you're always talking about somebody else, not me. It's different with me. We don't know the outcome, but it, it was probably gloomy. Well, why add the older brother to an otherwise great story? You know, we got a really good story until you add this guy. And then everything just falls apart. The parable magnifies the contempt some people have for divine grace. That sounds strange, don't it? Have contempt for divine grace? We're saved by grace. How could anybody have contempt for it? A lot of people have contempt for grace. And uh, when we think about it, we might find out that even we do. Maybe not divine grace, but we do have contempt for grace from time to time. I know I have at times. There were men like Jonah. He refused to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach eight words. That was the sermon the Lord wanted him to preach. Just an eight-word sermon, and Jonah refused to do it. Instead, he, he know, you know the story, he got on a ship, he started to go to Tarshish, probably Tarshish that's over in Spain, a great storm came up. He had to be thrown overboard to save the rest of the crew. He was swallowed up by a great fish that the Lord prepared. And in three days, he was spit out <clears throat> on the ground. <clears throat> that was uh, kind of the story of uh, Jonah. He did not want to go to the city of Nineveh and preach God's saving message. He ran from the Lord. Uh, he ran from the Lord... He said, I fled to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. You are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. I ran because I know, God, you're one who relents from doing harm. Jonah ran from his mission because he was afraid the people of Nineveh would repent and God would forgive them. That's what he ran for. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to go to hell. He wanted them to die and to go to hell and enjoy, experience the worst thing hell could probably throw at them. Now, we may not be as far from Jonah as we think. It wasn't that long ago where a couple of planes flew into the Twin Towers in New York City, and uh, many Americans lost their lives that day. There were a lot of people uh, there and elsewhere who lost loved ones that day. And it was all in the name of a jihad. 
uh, on the part of uh, radical uh, Muslims. And a lot of Americans uh, became uh, terribly infuriated with Muslims at that particular time. And uh, the only thing that could uh, satisfy the palates of so many people would be the death of terrorists. Well, this, this is kind of where Jonah's coming from. This is how he looked at the Ninevites. The Ninevites had taken many, many casualties in the city of Jerusalem and Judea. For years, they had been tormenting the Jewish people, uh, going into the area, uh, stealing their things, uh, killing their people, taking people off to be slaves. And they had a great contempt for the Ninevites. They despised them. And now Jonah has been commissioned by God to go and preach to these people. And he knows God. He knows what God will do. If they say they're sorry, God will relent from their destruction. And Jonah said, I don't want to be responsible for that. I'm going to run. And that's why he took off and ran. He didn't want to save them. And Jehovah spoke, and he asked Jonah this question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and there's much livestock there as well? Well, people have argued, scholars have argued over what the 120,000 represents. Is it little children who don't know the difference between the right and the left? Does it include those who are mentally challenged, yada, yada, yada? To me, the easiest way to read it is just the way it is. 120,000 persons who are too young to know the right hand from the left hand. What's Jehovah saying? There's a lot of kids in this city. Have you given any thought to them that they're going to be destroyed in process of the destruction of the great city of Nineveh? Very, very large city. Is this really what you want to happen, Jonah? He didn't answer the question, but had he answered the question, he would have said yes. That's exactly what I want to happen. Jonah would accept grace for himself, but he didn't want grace to be given to the Ninevites. The parable of the landowner shows a people who were unwilling for grace to abound. Uh, there was a landowner who went out to the marketplace to get people to come to work for him on a particular day. You know the parable. Uh, he went out at 6 a.m. Some people said, yeah, I'll work for a denarii a day. They went back to the field with him. He went back at 9 o'clock in the morning. Anybody need a job for a denarii a day? Yeah, hey, I need a job. So he went back to the field with him. He went back at noon. He went back at 3 p.m. And each time he went, there were people who would go back and work in his field for a denarii, each one agreeing to the same amount of money. He went back at 5 p.m., the 11th hour, and he called people to come back at that time. And they said, fine, yeah, we'll go. Man, a denarii for, for an hour's work? Sure, we'll go. So they went back, and they went to work. It came time to pay, and the ones who had been there all day, they got mad. They were furious because these guys who work for an hour are making as much money as we are. These last men have worked only one hour, and you make them equal to us who have borne the burden, and the heat of the day. I organized a union one time because of this. There was a guy who owned a company, and he wasn't being fair. There's only one way to deal with a guy like that, get a union, and force him to negotiate the terms of labor. He was paying some people more money than others. I thought it was unfair. 
He thought it was his business, it was his money, he would do as he wanted to do, and I disagreed. But you know, that's what happened here. This landowner, he gave people who worked 12 hours the same amount of money as he gave people who worked one hour. And then he asked them, he said, when you came to work for me at 6 a.m., didn't I tell you I'd give you a denarius for the day? Well, yeah, that's what, that's what you know, we agreed to. He said, isn't that what you got? Well, yeah, that's, that's what we got. Well, what business is it of, it of yours if I choose to take my money and give it to these people over here who only worked one hour? Isn't it mine to do with as I choose to do? It's my money. If I wanted to give them a denarius, isn't that okay? If he wanted to extend grace, these families needed a day's wages. It wasn't just the work. They needed uh, to, to, to provide housing for their family. They needed to provide clothing. They needed food. It took a certain amount of money to live. If he gave them only what they earned, they wouldn't have earned enough money to sustain them for another day. So this guy, out of the generosity of his heart, chose to give them more money than they actually worked out according to what the other people. And he said, isn't it mine to do with as I please? A woman came to me one time, and here's what she said. First time, the only time, actually, I ever heard it. She said, I don't think it's fair. I said, what? There was a man uh, who was very sick, uh, and I went to the hospital, and I spoke to him. I uh, went back a few times and spoke to him. Uh, he was a good man. Uh, I knew him for years, but he had never become a Christian. Uh, he was afraid he couldn't become a Christian because he was only doing it because he was on his deathbed. I explained to him, we went through the, uh, the, uh, the thief on the cross and how he, in just the last few hours, was saved by the Lord Jesus. I spent a little time showing him that God does save people if they, from the heart, can repent. Well, he did. I baptized him in the hospital up here. Uh, I thought I saw a genuine conversion. Whether it happened or not, that's between him and God. I know what I thought. Well, the next Sunday, I announced to church that he became our brother one day that week. Uh, it was, uh, he was still alive, though he I think he died a week or two later. But uh, he became uh, one of our brothers that week. And a woman met me at the back door, and she said, it isn't fair. I said, what? I've been a Christian for 40 or 50-something years, whatever she said. And all these years, I've been living the Christian life. And now you tell me that he can be saved the same as I can be saved? I've never heard anybody say that, just one time. Never heard it again. But I, I wonder how many times it's been thought. There was a man down at uh, Vanderbilt Hospital, and uh, he was uh, going to die. I knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. And I spoke to him, and he told me, he said, it isn't fair that I could be saved now. He, spent, he said, you spent your adult life as a preacher trying to persuade people to become a Christian. He said, I've done nothing. And now you're telling me that I can be saved the same as you can be saved? He said, it's just not fair. Well, what's not fair about it, Paul? I shouldn't have done that. What's not fair about that? By grace, I can be saved. By grace, another can be saved. If anyone is saved, it's going to be by grace, not merit. So how and who am I to say that one person is entitled to grace 
but another person isn't? That sounds like a contradiction in terms to me. If the Lord chooses to save someone, that's his prerogative. That's his business to do. What I'm interested in is whether or not the Lord will save me. But there's some people that don't like divine grace because a person can be saved and they've done nothing in the kingdom of God. They've done nothing or they've done little, little bit. Jesus said the fault with these people was they supposed they would receive more. They had agreed for denarii a day and for some reason they thought they should get more money and they became angry. They earned what they got, and I'm sure they did, but they agreed to it also. They should have been content. They weren't cheated. The Pharisees and scribes, as far as this uh, parable is concerned, they complained, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them, and that was unacceptable. Compassion for sinners was unacceptable. Divine mercy for sinners was just unacceptable. They didn't deserve it, though the scribes and Pharisees felt like they did. Tertullian was uh, an elder of the Lord's church uh, back in the second and third centuries. He was a very popular man. We have uh, many, many of his writings now. He commented on the parable of the prodigal son, and here's what he had to say. Uh, with regard to receiving prodigals, he said this must never apply to Christians. That's a little bit vague, but his, less, his next remark will bring it into focus. God might forgive, but the church should not. God might forgive the prodigals of this world, but the church should not. We shouldn't accept them back into our fellowship. And that was pretty much the practice at that time in history among churches of Christ. They had crossed the line. They had brought too much shame, too much reproach on God and the kingdom of God. And if God wants to forgive, that's God's business. But as far as we are concerned, the church, we won't accept them back into our fellowship. And it was uh, the practice of the day. Jealousy is what brought this up. The son said, you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You never gave me? <laughs> you never gave me? He's talking to the man who gave him life. He's talking to the man that gave him a job. He's talking to a man that's provided an industry for him to inherit. Everything his father has goes to this boy, and he's kicking over a goat? You never gave me a goat that I might make merry with my friends. <clears throat> and his jealousy turned to anger. Not my brother, but this son of yours. As soon as this son of yours came, who devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. He's angry with his father. His father was a good man. He was kind. He was compassionate. He was gracious. And it made him angry. Now remember, the elder brother, along with the Pharisees and the scribes, are representative of people who could be like us in the church if we've developed that type of an attitude of thinking we somehow deserve our position in the church 
or if we rely heavily on how much we've done or how much we know or how important we are in the church, it's very possible for us without aiming to to reach a point where we feel like we deserve heaven. We no longer strive. We no longer woo the Lord to win his heart and to keep his affection because we've reached the point where we deserve it. He should love me. Look what I've done for him. That's one of the reasons why the Lord's telling, uh, telling the parable, I believe, is because that is a possible danger of becoming too puffed up. It isn't fair. Boy, you ever heard that one before? You've heard it a thousand times. It isn't fair. It ain't fair. I worked with an engineer one time. That's what he always said. It ain't fair. It ain't fair. Uh, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Verse 29. Now, you know that's not true. He may not remember any of his transgressions, but he transgressed his father's will. We all have. That's just a, a bald-faced lie. He's putting himself on too much of a pedestal. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and it isn't fair that your son gets this uh, feast, and you never gave such a feast for me. The sins of the sinless brother. The main sin was his self-righteousness, and that's the real danger, I think. That's what worries me, is becoming self-righteous, thinking we're more than we are. It's very possible for people to do that. We think that we're more important we, than we are. We think we are indispensable, irreplaceable. It's possible for us to think that we are better than we actually are. And that's, that's something uh, to be mindful of, is being self-righteousness. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I think, the greatest oxymoron in Christianity is a self-righteous Christian. It's... It's really absurd when you stop and think about it. In uh, Proverbs 30, verses 12 and 13, Solomon said, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its own filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. We have the truth. Between the covers of the book we call the Bible, Everybody has the truth if they own a Bible. But sometimes we might speak of we have the truth in a sense that no one else does. That we're a favored people above all peoples. And we have to be careful about things like that. In Isaiah, uh, the Lord comments on those who, who, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. I'm holier than you are. I'm godlier than you are. I say this many prayers. I give this much money. I've preached this many sermons. I've done these many good works. Look how holy I am. We, we may think we merit it somehow, and that's a danger. The Lord said, these people are a smoke in my nostrils. They're a fire that burns my nose all day long. Whoops, I think I turned it off. Uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, we're familiar with uh, demonstrates the self-righteousness of some people. 
the Pharisee uh, prayed, boasting on himself, the Lord said he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. There are some people who have this attitude. They trust in themselves because of what they are, what they've done. They feel like they're a notch above others. And it's a, it's a very, very uh, real danger. Jesus said in John 9, 39 and 40, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, that those who see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him, they heard him speak these words, and they said to him, Are we blind also? He were the ones they was he was talking to, they were. They were the ones he was speaking about. You're blind thinking you know the truth, but because you are blind, you can't understand that you don't know the truth. It's one of the most dangerous positions of all to be put in. The prodigal is one thing, but a prodigal knows he's a prodigal. That's one of the things about being a sinner, blatantly. You know you're a sinner. But when a person thinks they're righteous, when they're convinced of their own righteousness, when they know they've got the answers, they're not susceptible or open to listening to other people, even if the other people might tell them the truth, because they can't learn the truth. You can't learn what you already know. And it's a very real danger. I've known uh, some preachers that uh, I, I thought felt this way. One of our brothers one time, he asked me if I had my doctorate. I called and asked the question. He was up in Michigan. And he asked me, he said, have you got your doctorate? I said, no. He said, well, one day when you get your doctorate, give me a call, and I'll answer your question. He was, uh, he was too holy to speak to me, and he chose not to. At least that's the way he felt about it. Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. People like the Pharisee and the tax collector who I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men. I think I've got that upper, yeah. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner, that I don't do sin. God, I give you the thanks for that because you've made me what I am, a pure and perfect man. Jesus spoke about those who justify themselves before men because of all that they have done, but God knows their hearts. God knows the truth. Regardless of what I think about myself, God knows the truth. We spoke earlier about the prodigal son hitting rock bottom Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who hit rock bottom. Why? Because they see themselves as they are. Well, the self-righteous person is the very opposite of the poor in spirit. God knows your heart, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, the church at Laodicea, Revelations 3, 14 through 22, had a, uh, they had a high uh, regard for themselves as a godly people. And Jesus said, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy 
and I have need of nothing. And you don't even know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If the Lord wrote a letter to the church at Center Grove today, would he say that? Is that what he would say to us? I ask myself questions like these all the time because I know it's a possibility. I know it can happen. If the Lord was to write us a letter, what would that letter say? Would he commend us for pure godliness or would he condemn us for exalting ourselves in the presence of others, denominations, different kinds of religions? How do we view ourselves in comparison to others? And how do we view ourselves in general? The best way I know to judge myself is by the man Jesus Christ. When I want to know where I stand, that's the place for me to look. Look at him and see where I stand. And it'd be very hard to get the big head. <clears throat> we should not trust in ourselves, Paul said, but in God who raises the dead. Amen. It's not about me. It's not about my abilities. It's about God. If we trusted in God as we ought to, we would not be guided by fear so much. When we understood that it's God who's working through us, we wouldn't worry about our limited talents so much. If God wants me to do a thing and he puts me in position to do that thing, then I ought to be confident that God is going to enable me to do what it is he puts me there to do. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Unless, of course, we're made righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's an imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that God charges to our account. It's not because we've earned it. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If I say that I never sin, I'm, I'm lying to myself. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. We sin. We may not want to, but nevertheless, we do sin from time to time. Blessed are the, spoor, the poor in spirit, the Lord said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who see themselves as they truly are, destitute in spirit, without the imputed righteousness of God. A self-righteous Christian, again, I think is an oxymoron. Uh, it's not even possible. How could a Christian be... Uh, how could a Christian be uh, self-righteous? A Christian is a person who is made righteous. A self-righteous person is a person who has made themselves righteous. It just uh, doesn't make sense. What the pure in heart knows beyond uh, any doubt at all is that I am a sinner. Not in the sense that I sin perpetually, habitually, but that I have been guilty of sin and from time to time I do sin again. I know that about myself. I know I try, but I can't seem to stop sinning. Have you ever prayed to God to forgive you? And you are terribly embarrassed because you sinned. And then uh, in a week or so, you did the same sin again. And you have to go back, pray to God to forgive you again. You ever feel like a hypocrite doing that? You ever feel like it's going to get old to the Lord? He's going to get tired of hearing the same old story all the time? 
Do you ever commit the same sin again and again and again, even though you don't want to? Well, I know you do because all of us do. There, there's something we do. Paul the Apostle helped me immensely with this problem in Romans chapter 7. He said, uh, what I am doing, I do not understand. I don't know why I do these things. I just know that I do. For what I will to do, what I want to do, that I do not practice. And what I do, I hate it. I hate what I'm doing. I'm sinning against God and I hate it. I know what the right thing to do is. I know I should do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. But I don't do the right thing. Instead, I do the thing that I hate and I don't even know why I do it. See, Paul knows how we feel. He wrestled with the same bear. The good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that's what I practice. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, the inner spirit. But I see another law, and it's in my members. It's in my flesh. And this, this law of my members is at war with my spirit, or as he calls it here, the law of my mind. That part of me made in the image of God wants to do what God would have me to do. But that part of me that was made from the earth, it wants to do whatever it chooses to do. It lusts. And it brings me sometime into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And I don't know why I do that. I need a savior. I can't save myself. I can't save myself. I've tried. I've been a Pharisee, I'm at the top of my class, and I still can't save myself. I've got to have a Savior. Oh, wretched man that I am, he cried. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you imagine what the Pharisee felt like? During the day, he looked like a giant among men. He was a leader of his peers. He was a leader of the leaders. One day, there was a very real chance he might be the head of the Sanhedrin. It was very possible. But every time he went to bed, or every time he had a quiet moment, he knew something about himself that no one else knew. He was far from being a perfect man. He was far from being a righteous man. He was far from being a saved man. And he didn't know what on earth he could do about it. He lamented, I am a wretched man. I am destitute. I can't do anything about it. Who will deliver me from this body I occupy? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That was the time Paul became a, a self-righteous Pharisee into a, a man who was poor in spirit. He had tried for so many years to live in a way that was good enough to be saved, but he was unable to do that. And he didn't know how to get out of his dilemma until he encountered the Son of God, until he found out what grace was all about. He knew he couldn't save himself and that if he was going to be saved, 
it would be by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He accepted heaven's invitation. He believed, he repented of his sins, he confessed Jesus as the Son of God, and by the instrument Ananias, he was buried in water for the forgiveness of his sins. And that day he became a New Testament Christian. And from that day forward, he speaks of a peace which surpasses understanding. From a man who is tormented by the reality of himself to a man who experienced a peace which surpasses understanding. Did Paul sin? Yes, he did. Did he ever really understand why? No, I seriously doubt it. But he knew that God knew, and he knew that God understood, and he knew that God was willing to forgive him as long as he had a heart that was willing to turn back to God and to plead for his protection and salvation. And that's the way Paul lived the rest of his life. And that's the way you and I should. It's not because we're good enough, but it's because Jesus is. And because he's good enough, you and I can live with him in heaven. We need to take the pressure off ourselves, the guilt we live with, the fear we live with. I don't know if I'm doing enough. You're not. I don't know if I'm good enough. You're not. There's nothing you and I can do to ever merit our own salvation. It isn't going to happen. But by the grace of God, we can be fully confident that our salvation is secure. All I have to do is know me and know that to what's within me, I'm walking with the Lord. And that's what we strive to do every day of our life. If you're not a Christian, you ought to become a Christian. That's what you're here for, to make one decision. Can you imagine that? Three score and ten years, it's all about making a single decision whether to walk with God or not, whether to choose God or mammon. One, one decision. And then the rest of it is in fulfilling that decision we made, that is, walking with God. As Christians, sometimes we need the prayer of our brothers and sisters. We sin in a public way sometimes. Sometimes we just need it others to pray for us because we can't carry the burden by ourselves any longer. We're tired. We're so tired and we need the prayers of the saints. If you find yourself in such a situation, please come while we stand and while we sing.